guys, and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Me too. Yeah, I'm super pumped up. It's almost Christmas, and I think I said on the last episode that I wasn't really excited, but now I am. So all of the things that have changed in a week, it's just been amazing. <laughs> what a whirlwind this has been. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I'm super, super excited. I guess when this comes out, we'll be a week away from Christmas. So this is probably a great time to mention that we will not see you at Christmas time because we will not be here. I mean, we will be here, but we will not be here in your ears. So we are off the week of Christmas, the 24th, and then we're also off the week of New Year's, which I guess is the first? 31st. Is that a Tuesday? The 31st, yeah. So we will be off those two Tuesdays, but we will be back early in January and better than ever. I like the confidence of that one. I'm not making any of those kind of promises. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm going to be tired and a little grumpy. The end of after Christmas, my kids are monsters. I love my children more than life itself. The day after Christmas is always the worst day of my life. Oh, yeah, because like you, no one really wants to go anywhere or do anything because a lot of people go out shopping that day, but I'm certainly not going out shopping the day after Christmas, and the kids are not happy, even though they just got a bunch of new stuff. It's I mean, not new happy, anymore. It's a whole day. It's a yeah. day old. So now they're just fighting over the things they had. You're like, this was supposed to be so happy. Yeah. Day after Christmas. It is a real downer around here. Maybe. And every year I think it's going to be different, but maybe this year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, here's to hoping that it's different this year. <laughs> so we will get right into the episode this week. We are discussing the suspicious disappearance of a thriving Michigan woman in 2007 and the terrible, terrible fate that befell her that winter. This is really one of the more gruesome cases that we have covered on the podcast. So we always like to say if you are listening to this while you're driving kids around or doing anything, you know, in earshot of the kids, maybe this one is not one you want to listen to with that situation happening. But come back. Come back to us. Just yeah. not around the kids. So this crime took place in an area of the country where gruesome crimes really just are not really a thing. And the biggest thing that Washington Township, Michigan, has to deal with is the occasional missing child who they end up finding at a friend's house a few hours later. But the horrifying crime that we are discussing today was an absolutely devastating shock to this very close-knit community. And before we get into the details of what happened, we are going to tell you a little bit about the area in this week's segment of We Googled This City. The story takes place in Michigan, and some of it takes place actually in Detroit. So that's where I've Googled the city. P.S. Detroit. Why am I saying Detroit? Detroit. What? Clearly, I'm not from there. Detroit has so many fun facts that we'll have to come back another time to revisit some of them because there's just so much information. I was so excited. I never get to be excited about this. It was great. So Detroit has a population of around 672,000 as of the 2018 census, making it Michigan's most populous city as well as the most populous city in the U.S. that shares a border with Canada. Speaking of Canada, during the Prohibition, Detroit made a popular spot to bring liquor into the country. Because of its proximity to the Canadian border, the Detroit River made it a great spot to bring these illegal shipments to the country. So back in the day when alcohol was illegal to be sold here in the United States, our friends from up north helped <laughs> ship it down the river, I guess, and uh, get it to the U.S. They are the real MVPs. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So in 1879, Detroit decided the original Big Brother, which were party lines that you had for your phones, they were like, you know what? I'm tired of anybody, Sally, down at the operator station. What would you even call that? 
listening to my conversation. We need our own flipping phone numbers. And so Detroit actually became the first city to have their own phone numbers, like your resident to have a phone number instead of just like, hey, call Saul, not the guy from Breaking Bad, but just call Saul, (laughs) my cousin. And they would, you know, do the party lines. And so that was kind of a cool thing, I thought, especially piggybacking on our Alexander Graham Bell, not Alexander Graham Bell guy last week who helped co-invent the telephone. And I've already forgotten his name. So I didn't even learn anything last week. Detroit is also the home of Motown Records, which boasts the likes of Aretha Franklin, Marvin Gaye, and Stevie Wonder. There are actually a ton of singers that call Detroit home, including the White Stripes, the late great Aaliyah, and Eminem. There are actually, Mandy, so many artists to stand in Detroit. And I don't know about you, but it feels like you could almost lose yourself if you weren't like (laughs) Superman. (laughs) Does this make any sense? Yes, it makes total sense. Oh, Mandy, I love the way you lie. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Mandy, let's get off of this. Let's get back into the episode. (laughs) So Melissa did Google the city out of Detroit, but this murder actually took place in Washington Township, Michigan. And it's a really slow paced farming kind of town. And it's just kind of a quaint place to raise a family. One such family that called this community home in 2007 were the Grants. This family consisted of Stephen and Tara Grant and their two children, six-year-old Lindsay and four-year-old Ian. Stephen and Tara hadn't always lived in Washington Township. Before Tara became a Grant, she was known as Tara DeStramp, and she had grown up on the other side of Lake Michigan in a township called Perkins. She was born on June 28, 1972, and was raised with a younger sister in the very rural community of Perkins. This is the type of very rugged Midwestern community where you see chickens roaming around and dogs chained to fences and people sitting on porches and everybody is just kind of hanging out. Everybody knows everybody. Minus the last part. It sounds like a place you would love. It actually does. To me, I kind of want to go there. So this is the type of place that people who live there really don't ever leave. Most of the people who are born there will live there until the day that they die. Life is really simple and old-fashioned in this neck of the woods, and Tara and her sister were raised in a family where their dad, the man of the house, was a provider, but also sometimes didn't treat their mom, you know, quite the way that he should have. Tara was involved in a wide range of extracurricular activities, including playing the clarinet, cheerleading, and participating in 4-H, and she raised a lot of animals. In high school, Tara was like any typical teenage girl. She had a best friend that she did everything with, and the two teen girls would pine over the local boys. Most little girls born here, as I said, grow up with dreams of getting married and having families of their own and settling down right there in their hometown. But Tara was always different. She knew pretty early on that she didn't want to follow in the path of her family and friends, and she was driven to break free of this little town and discover the world. Those who knew her recognized her ambitions and knew there was really no stopping her. After spending two years at a community college nearby, Tara finally made the decision to leave the area and went to attend Michigan State University, which was five and a half hours away from her home. By 1992, Tara was settled into her course routine and was working towards a degree in business administration while working part-time at a limited clothing store. She dated a few guys in college, but she was really more focused on her academics than worrying about finding a man to settle down with. 
But when her best friend and roommate graduated in 1993 and left Tara behind, she started to consider dating more seriously and became more open to the idea of finding someone that she could expand her horizons a little bit further with. It was the summer of 1994 when Tara met Stephen Grant after being introduced through her roommates. At first, she wasn't really impressed with Stephen much at all. He was from Detroit, which made him a lot different than the small town boys that she was typically used to back home in her small little township. Steve was born to Native Canadians Al and Sue Grant on January 18, 1970, and he already had an older sister, Kelly, who was two and a half years old whenever he came along. Steve's dad was an entrepreneur who was good with his hands, and the family relocated to the Detroit area so that he could make a career in the U.S. auto industry. Steve and his sister were raised in a really typical home with two dogs, and their father worked hard to support the family. He even came up with inventions himself to sell for money. But the stress of supporting a family was really hard on Steve's father, and he suffered from alcoholism, and he would stay out at local bars all night before calling and asking his wife to come pick him up. Steve's parents eventually divorced after 12 years of marriage, but within months they were back together and living life just as they had before. Steve was a rambunctious child who commonly failed to assess the dangers and risks in any situation. Once in his early teens, he managed to make a homemade bomb, which went off in his own backyard, blowing a hole into the ground and causing his father to actually call the police to investigate what happened. This actually sounds a little like my husband. This is a little terrifying. My husband set many things on fire. (laughs) My husband and his brothers would totally do something like this, I feel like. But yeah, so he was just like, this guy Steve was building bombs and all these things and and was, of course, hiding it from his parents. And so when there's this giant hole in the backyard and his dad is like, hey, where'd this come from? And Steve was like, I don't know. So the dad, of course, you know, called the police and was like, someone set off a bomb in my backyard. But it was really Steve, which is just, yeah, I mean, I can picture my husband doing something like that for sure. But my gosh, that is crazy. My husband accidentally set fire. I might edit this out later. He was throwing like matches at a carpet like in the woods. Don't ask me why there was carpet in the woods. And <laughs> he thought it was wet and so it would go off. And then he and his friend left and they came back and because they saw smoke rising from the woods and this guy's yelling like, oh, grab some water, help me out, help me out. So they're like, they're trying to help get the water out and the guy's like, thank you so much. And the firefighters are there and no one knows that these two accidentally set the woods on fire. So if that's an open investigation, I guess he could still get in trouble. (laughs) I don't know the statute of limitations on that, but. Steve also had a habit of shoplifting as a teenager, which he did often just for the thrill of it. He was always taking everything to the next level and doing things that his friends were really too scared to do, including stealing guns from his grandfather and then burying them in the ground to dig up later. I saw that on, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt again. What is that show? The Ozark? A kid was burying guns in the ground. I thought that would ruin a gun. Am I crazy? I would think like I mean, one piece of dirt. Yeah, I feel like you'd have to clean it. I, I really don't know. I've never tried to bury a gun and dig <laughs> it up at a later time, so I really have no clue. It just seems like there's there's better options out there. That's what I think. Like, can you not hide them in your room or something? So anyway, <laughs> Steve was really always reckless, according to his high school best friend, Ken. Ken said that anytime he was hanging out with Steve, he was just seconds away from losing a limb or having an eye put out. He was really extremely smart, but otherwise just really blended into the crowd. After graduating from high school, Steve attended a community college, but he had no real direction and never picked a major. During this time, he had a few run-ins with the local law enforcement for things like speeding and possession of a weapon without a permit. 
At some point, Steve decided it was his dream to teach history, and he enrolled at Michigan State, but after four years of attending, he was no closer to a degree and was working odd jobs near the campus and partying more than studying. He attempted a foray into politics in 1994 and got a job working in the office of Senator Jack Faxon. It was shortly after landing this job that he was introduced to Tara. From the beginning, Steve really had an attraction to Tara and her upstate look, but the feeling was not reciprocated. He seemed much too complicated and different in her opinion, and so she turned him down when he first asked her out on a date. Despite being mostly disinterested in a relationship with Steve, Tara continued to talk to him as friends, and he eventually convinced her to let him take her out on a real date. Several weeks later, Tara's grandmother passed away, and Steve showed up at the funeral unannounced because he cared about Tara and wanted to be there for her. So this is, you know, five hours away from where they're attending college. So this is kind of a big deal for him to just drive yeah. there and show up there. It's it's a nice gesture, but you would definitely be surprised, I feel like, if someone did that and didn't tell you that they were coming. Yeah. So there was a little bit of awkwardness there, and they had an, a dinner with Tara's family, but it wasn't they weren't very warm and welcoming. So Steve actually headed back to Lansing the following day, but Tara ended up calling him and said that she was in love with him. In December of 1994, just six months after they had first met, Steve proposed to Tara shortly after she graduated. Tara was eager to find her first real job, and after a little persuasion on Steve's part, the newly engaged couple moved to the Detroit area where Tara got a job through a temp agency at an engineering firm which is now known as Washington Group International. She excelled in this new job and quickly earned herself a permanent full-time position and a very comfortable salary. As for Steve, he had taken a job working with his father at the family's tool and dye shop, and this wasn't really a glamorous job, but it paid him pretty well. Over the next several years, Tara thrived in her career, and the couple was doing well financially. They began to talk of starting a family, and in November of 2000, their first child, Lindsay, was born. Now that the Grants were a growing family, it was time to upgrade to a larger home, and that's how they ended up in the upscale suburbs of Washington Township. The couple acclimated to their new area quickly, and both became active in the community. Two years later, in 2002, the couple welcomed their son, Ian. Life was perfect for this family. Tara's career had taken off, and she was making nearly $100,000 a year as the operations manager. But just as Tara was successful and thriving in her career, things were a little shaky under the surface at home. She had been emotionally closed off for much of the couple's marriage and had also distanced herself from other relationships with people who she cared about and who cared about her. Of course, nobody would ever realize that the couple wasn't picture perfect because Tara wouldn't dream of sharing such personal details about her life with anyone. Outwardly, they appeared to have it all, stability and a comfortable, happy life. In 2004, Tara recommitted to her relationship and apologized to Steve for being emotionally unavailable, and the couple actually renewed their wedding vows on their 10th anniversary. And we are going to get into a lot more details of this case after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. This time of year, I am trying to cram in as many holiday memories as possible for my kids. We're driving by to see the lights on houses, visiting with friends we swore we'd see before the next holiday, and watching other people move the elf on the shelf on social media. With the hustle and bustle of the holidays, I am definitely not great about getting out to the grocery store, so I really rely very heavily on Instacart. 
This past week, my parents were in town, so while we were out running around, I opened my Instacart app and ordered a few things to be delivered to my house so I could make dinner for everyone just a few hours later. With Instacart, you can order from local and national grocery stores that you usually shop from. Your personal shopper gathers your groceries with care, picking excellent produce just as you do, and chatting with you as necessary. We love Instacart at my house and use it, especially when someone is sick or if we just don't want to leave. It also helps me save money by avoiding all those impulse buys at the end of the trip or all the things that the kids see that they absolutely need right now. Try Instacart and get $10 off and free delivery on your first order. To get this limited time offer, download the mobile app or go to instacart.com and enter our promo code MOMS10 at checkout. That's $10 off and free delivery on your first order today in the mobile app or at instacart.com. And don't forget to enter our code MOMS10. We're one week away from Christmas and do you know where I want to be? Not standing in the line at the post office, I can assure you that. I want to be inside, drinking hot chocolate in the 80-degree weather, wishing for cooler days, and printing stamps right from my desk to send out for our Patreon perks. And I can do all of that at home with a blanket away from all the people. And that's just what Stamps.com helps me do. If you own your own business like us, meet your new best friend, Stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do in your own home and in your pajamas. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's that simple. Plus, Stamps.com wants to help you save money. You get $0.05 cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. It's really a no-brainer. Stamps.com not only saves you time, it also saves you money. Don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. With our promo code Moms and Murder, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Moms and Murder. That's Stamps.com, enter Moms and Murder. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. And now back to the episode. A couple of years ticked by, and in early October of 2006, Tara was assigned the job of handling her company's office in San Juan, Puerto Rico, which meant that she would have to be away from home for at least three weekdays each week. Tara really tried to make it work, and she would do everything she could to adjust her schedule to be there for her kids when they needed her. But Stephen was really struggling in his new role that included doing much of the child rearing alone. The couple hired a 19-year-old au pair from Germany named Verena to help with the kids while Tara was away on business. She stayed and lived in the home with the family. At this point in Steve and Tara's marriage, things were less than ideal. Tara recognized some traits in herself that were causing more friction in their marriage and even made a list of things she wanted to work on in the new year. The list included things like starting a monthly date night, stop yelling, start exercising, and become better at communicating with her husband, which I feel like everyone can really relate to. Relate to all that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> even the yelling, I'm like, Some- most people yell. I, I totally get it. So in the meantime, Steve was pulling more and more away from Tara. At the beginning of 2007, he reached out to his former girlfriend, Dina. Steve had kept in communication with her at least once or twice a year since they had split up, but this particular time, his email to her was way more flirtatious than it had been in years past. Although Dina knew about Tara and the kids, she continued to have contact with Steve. Their conversations would really range in topic, but Steve would frequently speak negatively about his marriage and even stated that he didn't care about being married. Around this time, Steve had discovered evidence that Tara had been having her own indiscretions. 
He found emails from two years prior in 2005 where Tara had been having romantic conversation with a man from her past. After discovering the questionable emails, Steve approached the au pair and made advances towards her. He told her that she was really beautiful and that he wanted to sleep with her. The 19-year-old was really taken aback, but was also somewhat flattered, and she felt that Steve was an attractive man and there, there was really no harm with a little bit of flirting. The two began a mild affair, although Verena was much more reserved about their physical contact than Steve was hoping for. They spent time kissing and cuddling, but did not have sex with each other. When Tara was in Puerto Rico for work, Verena would share a bed with Steve. Things were pretty tense in the Grant marriage at this time, as you can imagine. It seemed as though Tara's desire to do it all was really catching up to her, and it was becoming harder and harder for her to manage and balance all of these things. She felt this mounting pressure to be the best at her job and to continue being successful while also being the perfect wife and mother, but it was just a lot to handle, and she was really often filled with anxiety and felt on edge about juggling her life. Tara was also fed up with Steve and had grown to resent his jealousy and this habit that he had of snooping through her emails and conversations with friends made it seem like Tara was really on the verge of leaving Steve. And that's kind of where things were at in February of 2007. It had been a typical week where Tara was in Puerto Rico and was due to fly back home for the weekend on Friday, February 9th. Tara's flight home was at one o'clock that afternoon and she was anxious to see her kids and spend time with them over the weekend. All she had to do was make it through a layover and two flights, and she would finally be home. She was less excited to see Steve that weekend because, of course, as we said, the tensions between them had gotten so high. One of the main things that Steve and Tara had argued about in the recent weeks was the amount of travel that Tara was doing. And Steve was really paranoid that she was having an affair with her boss and had told Tara that he didn't want her to travel so much anymore. Tara knew coming home that weekend that there was going to be some kind of argument because she already actually had planned to return to Puerto Rico on Sunday, which was a day earlier than when she would normally go back. So she's already thinking, you know, I have to do this for my job and my husband's not going to be happy when I go home and tell him, you know, I'm not going to be staying for as many days as I, you know, as many days as what you want me to. So after a long day of flying, Tara finally arrived back in Michigan between 9 and 10 that night. When she got home, the kids were already in bed, but Steve was awake and the couple wasted no time starting up a very hostile discussion. When Steve learned that Tara planned to go back to Puerto Rico early, the argument escalated and turned physical, with really each of them getting their blows in. Despite Steve's protesting about her returning to Puerto Rico early, Tara allegedly packed a fresh suitcase and told Steve that she was leaving and she wasn't going to come back. Steve says that it was sometime around 11 that Tara called somebody to pick her up and she left their home in a black sedan. Following the heated argument, Steve was distraught. When Verena, the au pair, arrived home, it was just shortly after Tara had left. Steve told Verena about this terrible argument that the couple had had and said that Tara said she wasn't going to be coming back. Steve then tried to call Tara numerous times, leaving several voicemails pleading with her to just change her mind. Although Steve appeared to be upset that night, he still invited Verena to stay the night in his bed. Over the next several days, there was still no word from Tara. Steve continued to attempt to contact her, but she never returned any of his messages. Steve began contacting Tara's friends, family, and co-workers to see if anyone had seen or heard from her. 
Having exhausted all the options to find Tara himself, Steve decided it was finally time to involve the police. On February 14th, he went to the police station to report Tara missing. Steve's demeanor at the police station was exactly what you'd expect of a worried husband when he didn't know where his wife was. He told police that he really regretted waiting so many days to report her missing, but that he had assumed that she had gone off to Puerto Rico and would be back. He stated that he hadn't heard from her in five days and that they'd had an argument on the last night that he saw her. Steve was really very cooperative with police and he complied with all of their requests, even inviting them into his home to look around and allowing them to look at the couple's bank and cell phone records. But there were no clues to be found there. There had been no activity on Tara's cell phone since February 9th, and the last confirmed record of purchase was with her company-issued credit card when she used it to pay the toll on her way home from the airport that night. Police started their search by contacting Tara's friends and family, checking local hotels, and then contacting the airline to find out whether or not she had actually boarded her flight to Puerto Rico. They learned that Tara had not changed her flight plan to leave on Sunday as Steve has said she was going to do, and they also learned that she did not board the plane on Monday for the scheduled flight. Then they remembered that Steve had told them that Tara was being picked up by someone in a black sedan that evening, and they wondered whether there may be a third party involved in Tara's mysterious disappearance. Although Steve wasn't a suspect at this point, police still asked if he would be willing to come to the police station for a polygraph the next day. He agreed at first, but then decided not to go after his lawyer told him not to. Police followed up on what few leads they had, including speaking with the au pair who told them of what she considered to be a mild affair between herself and Steve. She confirmed the story that Steve had given her that night that Tara was last seen, telling the police that Steve was upset when she came home and told her about this fight with Tara before he says Tara allegedly stormed off. Police were running out of avenues really to go down. They had to consider the possibility that Steve was not telling them the truth and that he knew more about where his wife was than he was leading on. After all, he was the last person to see her, and he already admitted to having a heated argument with her that night. So, of course, the police need to explore this idea that maybe the fight was a lot more serious and that Tara had been hurt in some way, possibly even at the hands of Steve himself. But they really have to play it cool. They don't have any evidence to suggest that this is you know, the correct theory. So they placed Steve under surveillance while they tried to find more clues or something that they could use to tie him to this. Steve's media appearances were also starting to be analyzed a lot more closely. He was going on the news like pretty much every yeah. day that she was missing and pleading for her return. So the detective started watching every time he spoke and started to read between the lines and kind of listen a little more closely to what he was saying. Although he appeared to be genuine in wanting his wife to come home, the tone in which he spoke about her seemed a little off. He mentioned a number of times that he was more of a mom than Tara was and that she had always put her career first. And he seemed a little bitter about it. And people were starting to take notice of that. Which is crazy in televised you know, conversations about your missing wife to basically say, well, I'm really more of a mom than she is. Like how right. that would even come up if you're truly grieving and worried about something. That's that's kind of crazy to even slip. Yeah, definitely. As things began to really heat up, the agency that had placed Verena with the Grant family actually pulled her from their home and sent her right back to Germany, which the police were not really happy with because they felt like she might know more information as well. And of course, they would have preferred for her to be in the U.S. so that they could question her whenever they needed to. 
In the next several days, the officers that were surveilling Steve observed him stopping into a gas station near his job every morning and purchasing all three of the major newspapers that they had for sale there, which to the police indicated that Steve was looking for articles about his wife's disappearance and trying to figure out what the police were saying and what they knew. And this is, of course, very strange because if you are working with the police to find your wife, you would just go directly to the police and ask them what information they have. You wouldn't be trying to go secretly and get get it through the newspapers. Even though detectives had already visited the Grant home the night Stephen reported Tara missing, they wanted to go back again and do a more thorough search. But the only problem was that without probable cause, they wouldn't be able to get a judge to sign a warrant for the search. In the course of speaking with the police, Steve had mentioned this park that he and Tara and the kids used to spend a lot of time with called Stony Creek Park. And the police decided kind of on a whim to just do a search of the park on the off chance that they might find any clues there. When Steve got wind that this park was going to be searched, he had his lawyer contact them and request that he be allowed to be present for the search, which police also thought was very weird. But after nearly eight hours of searching, they didn't find anything there that had to do with Tara. The investigators were desperate for answers at this point. They were really concerned with bringing this young wife and mother back home with her family, but they were truly all out of ideas about where else to look for her. That's when the sheriff's office held another press conference begging for the public to keep their eyes peeled and report anything at all suspicious that they might see to the police. On February 28th, a call came in. A woman who was out for a walk in an area that was nearby the Grant home had actually spotted a plastic bag that appeared to have more plastic bags, latex gloves, and blood inside. The woman initially believed that this may have been a bag that a hunter had maybe tossed to the side, but considering the search that was going on for this missing woman and the close proximity it was to the Grant home, the woman felt that it was something that the police should really take a look at. She carefully transported the bag from the woods to her home where she placed it in the garage and called the authorities. Technicians arrived on the scene and used a field swab to confirm the presence of blood inside the bag, and a crime lab verified that it was, in fact, human blood, and also that there was microscopic metal shavings inside the bag as well. The new development was enough for police to get a warrant to search the Grant home three and a half weeks after Tara was last seen. The warrant was served and executed on Friday, March 2nd. It included not only the Grant home, but also Steve's father's machine shop, where Steve also worked. As police were on their way to the Grant home, this surveillance detail that was keeping an eye on Steve knew that he was on his way home from work, so they pulled him over to let him know that they were actually searching his property. Steve accompanied police back to his home and let them in, but almost immediately he began to act really strange. He wouldn't make eye contact with the officers, and he appeared anxious as police began rummaging through his home. Numerous law enforcement personnel went from room to room, photographing potential evidence and looking for clues. After a while, Steve told police that he'd like to go out and walk his dog. Officers had no reason to hold him, so they agreed and let him walk off. A short time later, a group of detectives in the garage noticed a storage bin that they hadn't seen that first time that they had visited the home. One officer opened it up and saw a black garbage bag, and when he pushed on it, he said it felt soft and had some give to it. At this point, the officer called in the crime scene photographer and had the bin photographed before cutting the bag open to see what was inside. To his shock and horror, it was a human torso, still clothed. The officer also observed what appeared to be large metal shavings along with the torso. The first remains of Tara Grant had been discovered, and Steve had just been allowed to walk off with no surveillance detail trailing him. I can't imagine their reactions when they 
discovered this and then they realize, you know, we just let this guy yeah. walk right down the street and like no idea where he's going. And now we find something like this. Like that had to be such just a crazy moment, I feel like, for the detectives and everybody. The only thing I could think is if they're tracking his cell phone and stuff, if they think, oh, he's acting nervous, maybe he's going outside to call somebody. You know what I mean? And they don't want to be too close. Um, this is just me and my brain and how I think. But I thought, well, maybe he, you know, they want to give him a space. And then they're tracing his calls. And he's calling this person who knows something. And now they have this evidence it's instead of, like, spooking him and staying with him. But I definitely see what you're saying where it's like, oh, he was just going for a walk and now he's gone and oh my gosh how did this happen yeah we are going to get into a lot more details of the case after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors new year's will be here before we know it which is great because it comes right after i've stuffed my face for the last month on carbs galore it's a great time to start new habits and kickstart better eating habits not just better habits for January, but for a lifetime. When I'm feeling good about myself, my attitude is better and my brain is more clear. Noom is a great way for me to take charge of what I'm eating and to make changes I need to be the healthiest, happiest me I can be. If we're being honest, making healthy changes in your day-to-day -day life doesn't sound like a blast, does it? Luckily, Noom makes it a breeze with the ease and convenience of their app. Plus, they only ask you to give 10 minutes a day just for yourself. Noom also connects you with a community of people just like you and gives you access to a goal specialist to chat with. I'm finally making myself a priority and working towards my goal of having a better relationship with food. I want to be able to make healthier choices naturally, tame my anxiety, and generally feel more confident, and I'm so glad that I have Noom to help me along the way. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, that's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. Visit Noom.com slash moms to start your trial today. That's Noom.com slash moms, the last weight loss program you'll need. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it's truly an affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the episode. So before we took the break, we were talking about how the first remains of Tara Grant had just been discovered in the garage, in a bin, in their family home. And Steve, the husband, has just walked down the street with the dog. So almost immediately after they discovered this torso, there was a manhunt started looking for him. In the meantime, the police still had to search the shop where Steve worked. And when they got there, it was a really disorganized place. Of course, it's just a machine shop. It's a tool and die shop. So there was 
oil and grease and all kinds of things all over the place in there. But police did notice metal shavings that were consistent with the ones that they found with Tara's remains. At this point, police were intent on finding the rest of Tara's remains, and the sheriff ordered another more involved search of Stony Creek Park, this time using cadaver dogs to specifically search for human remains. Sadly, the dogs did recover about three quarters of Tara's remains that were buried around the park. Tara's body was taken to the medical examiner for an autopsy in the hopes of determining her cause of death. The findings were that Tara had suffered a strong blow to her right jawline, but was killed by way of strangulation. The medical examiner believed that many different types of blade were used to dismember her body. Meanwhile, Steve is still missing, and it would take two days and thousands of taxpayer dollars before the police were able to locate him. It was actually Steve's own sister who tipped the police off to his location when she called and said that Steve had contacted her and hinted around that he was going to head north to Wilderness State Park where the Grant family had a cabin. The family's au pair, Verena, also called the police from Germany to say that Steve had also contacted her and she gave the police the area code that he had called from, which when they looked it up, it matched the area that his sister said that he was going. In the early morning hours of March 4th, Police found Stephen hiding under a fallen tree, wearing only pants, socks, and a shirt, despite the temperature being well below freezing. He appeared to have been drinking, and he was in pretty rough shape all around. He was taken to a hospital where he was stabilized and then immediately placed under arrest, and the police were really eager to interview him. So as soon as he was well enough, they set up their recorder, and they had their first interview with him as he was laying in his hospital bed. Over the course of two hours, Steve confessed to murdering his wife in great detail. Steve's account of the story is that he and Tara had been arguing that day over the phone while she was traveling. When Tara arrived at home, she was wearing earbuds and seemed really disinterested in even acknowledging Steve, which made him angry right off the bat. He said that they fought that night over her frequent travel and what Steve perceived to be an inappropriate relationship with her boss. When Tara said that she needed to leave for Puerto Rico a day earlier, Steve said that he became enraged. He wanted Tara to spend more time with the family, and he was angry that she would cut her weekend at home short. Steve said that Tara tried to walk away from the argument, but that he grabbed her by the wrist, which resulted in Tara slapping him. He hit her back, striking her in the jaw and neck, which caused her to fall backwards and hit her head on the wall. But he said that she was fine and actually got up and threatened to call the police and said that she was going to divorce him and that he would never see their kids again. Steve said that that's when he snapped. He put his hands around Tara's neck and started choking her. He told police that Tara tried to grab at his hands and stop him, but it was really too late. He says he knew he was going to be going to jail anyway and decided to go through with strangling Tara to death. Once Tara stopped breathing, Steve said that he tied a belt around her neck and dragged her body down the stairs and into the garage and placed her in the back of her SUV. He actually was nearly caught by Verena as she arrived back to the home just moments after he hid Tara's body. Steve decided right then and there that he needed to pick his story and stick to it. He brainstormed several ideas for disposing of Tara's body, and he eventually decided that he would dismember her and bury the remains in various locations. Steve then told the police how he left Tara's body in her SUV the whole day on Saturday, and then on Sunday he took her body to the machine shop where he dismembered it. While at the machine shop, he also shredded Tara's cell phone and laptop and disposed of the evidence in numerous dumpsters along the way. Throughout this entire process, 
Steve said that he continued to call and leave voicemails on Tara's phone as part of his alibi. Steve's hospital bed confession was very detailed and outlined exactly what had happened that night. Not only did Steve confess to the murder, but he also told police that he believed he was going to get away with it. He actually told them that on the morning that they first searched Stony Creek Park, he went out there himself to move Tara's torso. He said he feared he hadn't hidden it well enough, and when he got word that the park was going to be searched, he made this frantic decision to go there himself and move it before the police arrived. He first took the torso back to his father's machine shop, where he left it in the bin for several days, but he realized that he couldn't leave it there forever, and he picked it up and brought it home to his own garage while he figured out what to do with it. He had actually just moved the torso into his garage less than a day before the police searched his home and had planned on moving it back into the woods that very afternoon. He believed he was in the clear after police had searched the park for eight hours and found nothing, and he thought he had gotten away with it. When he was discharged from the hospital the following day, police were waiting for him and they took him directly to jail where he was booked on murder charges. Now that Tara's remains had been located, her family was ready to lay her to rest. On March 25th, Tara was buried near her family plot. Steve was eventually charged with first-degree murder and mutilation. He pled guilty to the mutilation charge, but went to trial for the murder charge in December of 2007. Since Steve had already really given this detailed confession about the murder, his defense was not that he was innocent, but that he was only guilty of murder in the second degree rather than the first. His attorneys argued that the murder was not premeditated, but the prosecution fired back, saying that Steve had plenty of time to change his mind while he was in the process of strangling his wife, and that he made a conscious thought and thought-out decision to go through with killing her. The jury also heard the audio-taped confession in Steve's own words and listened as the prosecution described the affair that he'd been having with the 19-year-old au pair, telling them how Steve had slept in the same bed with the young woman just hours after he murdered his wife. After 16 hours of deliberation, the jury returned with a verdict of guilty on one count of second-degree murder. His sentencing was set for February 21, 2008. On the count of second-degree murder, he was sentenced to 50 to 80 years, and for the mutilation count, he received 6 to 10 years. This would mean that Steve would be well into his 80s by the time he was eligible for parole. He was eventually taken to Bellamy Creek Correctional Center in Iona, Michigan, where he has had time to ponder his actions. He was quoted as saying, I miss Tara, and I know that sounds so bad. I hope to see her again. She was part of my life for 13 years. I really did love her. The grandchildren were placed in the custody of Tara's sister, who is honored to raise them as if they were her own. Tara's sister has worked with Lindsay and Ian to keep their mom's memory alive and have organized an annual event to raise money and spread awareness about domestic violence. The children are both now in their teens, and they are thriving and doing everything they can to remember and honor their mom. Man, that quote from him is tough. It's really something... Yeah, and, and I get where he's coming from, and I mean, obviously, I don't think it's acceptable to kill somebody because you get angry or you snap, but I can see how in his shoes he could, like, now that he's, you know, having to sit there and think about it every day, I can obviously see how he would be like, well, yeah, like, I, that's the mother of my children. We were married for so long, and, you know, it's a really, really terrible, heartbreaking story. I'm so glad the kids are with their aunt and that they're doing yeah, well now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but him saying that, it's kind of like, 
you don't get to say that now. You know what I mean? You can think that, but don't ever say yeah. that out loud. Like not with his his kids and what you've literally confessed to doing. Like too bad. You don't don't miss her. Don't don't even do that. I know what you're saying, but it just kind of makes me want to hurt him. And I don't want to do that because I don't want to go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get that. So a lot of the information for this episode, especially like a lot, most of the information on the backgrounds of Steve and Tara came from a book I read on this case called A Slaying in the Suburbs by Steve Miller and Andrea Billups. And we will link that, of course, in the show notes along with the other sources as usual. I just wanted to give that book a shout out. It was really, really well, well written. If, and there's so much to this case, so many little details and yeah. stuff. If you want to check that out, definitely go read that book. And like I said, we'll put the link to it in the show notes. So before we go to a last thing before we go, uh, I just want to do another quick reminder that Melissa and I will be at CrimeCon on Podcast Row May 1st through 3rd. It is here in Orlando, Florida. So, and May is a beautiful time to be in Orlando. I think that's like my favorite time of year in Florida, possibly. Yeah, it's not too hot yet, right? That's true. That's true. You're like late May, you don't want to be here. Early May, we're still enjoying it. Yeah. Enjoy yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So if you would like to come see us at CrimeCon, which is, by the way, such a great event. It's so awesome. We had so much fun last year. We didn't even know what to expect. And Melissa and I were kind of like, wow, we wish we had time to actually go enjoy and do more things. But of course, we love being on Podcast Row and it's so fun. And so if you want to go do that, you can come see us. You can get 10% off your standard badge if you use the code M&M2020. And I think that's that on CrimeCon. That is that. Yes. We're super excited. Can't wait. And I know some of you have already said you're going to be there and we can't wait to see you. Yes. It'd be really weird and awkward. Yeah. Well, as usual. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So we are going to go right into last thing before we go. Since we are so close to Christmas, we are going to do a fun and hopefully funny little game of would you rather with each other. So I have a few would you rather questions. Melissa has a few. And then we will do our little, you know thing where we discuss them (laughs) oh my gosh that last part was rough to hear (laughs) i'm just kidding (laughs) just kidding okay mandy do you want to start with yours i will do the first one why don't we just go back and forth we'll take turns perfect yes okay would you rather be locked in a room with someone who hates everything about christmas or be locked in a room with someone who is super fanatical when it comes to christmas Ooh. um like, are we talking Debbie Downer levels? And how long are we locked in this room? That 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 can change things. I mean, let's say, like, how long would it drive you crazy? Let's say you had to be in the room with this person for, like, three days. And all they talk <gasps> about is how much they hate Christmas. And then, or someone who just talks about how much they love it so much, like the elf, but in real life. Okay. I'm going to say uh, loves Christmas. And I know that doesn't sound so much like me, but I can't take that much negative energy because it really will, like, I'll be in a big funk by the time I get out. At least I can, like, sarcastically hate the person that loves Christmas too much in my head. But I can't I can't be put in a Debbie Downer room for three days. I will come out in all brown clothing just like Debbie Downer with my little trombone sound playing I can't do it what about you yeah I for sure would rather be with someone who just really loves Christmas so much because I feel like it's easier to like fake being happy I I don't know like it's easier for me to get into it and be like yay we can sing carols and stuff but I would not be cool with somebody just being like negative like that like you said that would get on my nerves so fast yeah and I hate most things but I try to like keep it at a minimum and not three days in a row that would literally kill me okay Mandy 
My first question is, would you rather have a mistletoe that stays over your head from Thanksgiving to New Year's and either kiss the bottom of the shoes of every person you run into for 10 seconds or rub their feet for 10 seconds? This is a very detailed would Kiss their feet or <laughs> rub their feet? No, no. Kiss their shoes so you Ugh. don't know where they've been. And this is every person you run into. You're wearing a freaking mistletoe. Or rub their feet for 10 seconds. How did you even write this down with this your- This is just my brain. <laughs> this is my brain. Um, I don't want to kiss anyone's shoes. I guess I would rub feet. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Have you seen some people's feet? It is so terrible. It is just so terrible. Are you licking oh. boots, Melissa? Are you- <laughs> I would lick boots for 10 seconds each person before I touch their feet. I <laughs> I can't go any further than that, but it is really rough how much I would hate touching somebody's feet. My husband's foot will touch me when we're going to sleep and I want to just <laughs> die. <laughs> I can't imagine putting his foot in my hand. I would I would just cut it off. There's just no I can't I can't do that. So. I feel like it's so like I I am really weird about like like germ things in my mouth. So like, I feel like I would be okay if I had to touch someone's gross feet. Cause then at least I could wash my hands and like, Oh, but you can't I get see it where out. You're you coming from. You I can't get from. like shoe bottom out of the, out of your mouth once you put it in there. So I just don't <laughs> like that. <laughs> I would eat the gum off of somebody's shoe before I rub somebody's foot for 10 seconds. Maybe not. No, I probably would. I cannot <laughs> stand feet. Oh, all right, Mandy. Next okay. one. All right. So would you rather listen to Mariah's All I Want for Christmas is You on repeat until your ears bleed or be forced to eat gingerbread cookies without any milk? Like, let's just say a ridiculous amount of them, like 50 gingerbread cookies. <laughs> so you would just literally go crazy with Mariah Carey or just eat gingerbread cookies. How many did you say? 50. 50. Um, I don't want my ears to bleed. I guess eat the gingerbread cookies. I love that song, Ugh. but I can't do it that long. I can't, I can't take songs until they make my ears bleed. Yeah, I think I would also rather just like, cram a bunch of cookies in than listen to the same thing on repeat. Which leads me to my next question, which is very similar to yours. Mandy, would you rather hear the song Santa Baby playing from the moment Thanksgiving ends to New Year's 24-7? I make mine very extreme. Or sing Santa Baby wherever you are with no context when someone mentions Santa or Christmas. So if you're out of the mall and somebody talks about Santa, you literally have to just sing Santa Baby. Or would you rather literally just hear it for what is that, like 40-something days? Oh, no, no. 100%. I would rather just break out into song anytime someone said Santa. Right? I like. I was telling my daughter these, and I, she's like, wait, what's Santa Baby? And I played it. She's like, that is a terrible, terrible song. I'm like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm with you. I'd rather do that, too. I just like the idea of like, the, no matter what's going on, you have to stop what you're doing and sing it, but you can't even tell anybody <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> Like your family like, is going to be so concerned about you. Yeah, but I feel like stranger people see stranger things. I mean, if I was at the mall and someone just started singing Santa Baby, I wouldn't be like, I wouldn't be like concerned. You know, I, I mean, I would be like, okay, that's a little strange, but you know, what I if feel they like sing it six times like it while you're around them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can't stop singing the song. Oh gosh! All right, okay, all right. So my last one, I don't even okay. The way the way I have it typed and worded is. It just doesn't sound right, but <laughs> I hope you get the point anyway. OK, 
Okay. So would you rather chug a gallon of eggnog oh. or eat a piece of my famous meat pie? <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't listened to the show before, meat pie is something that Mandy makes that is made with meat and pepper. That's all we know. We just <laughs> know it has a lot of time. pepper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eat the entire pie or eggnog. Not the entire pie. Just eat one piece of my pie or chug a gallon of eggnog. I would rather eat. I'm not going to call it that. I would rather <laughs> eat the meat pie that you make with your hands with meat and pepper than drink eggnog. Eggnog, just the idea of it makes me feel like vomitous. I don't even know how to talk. My hands are clammy now. I can't even think about eggnog. It makes me feel so sick. Okay. <laughs> what about you, Mandy? Well, you, obviously, well, I'd of rather. Of course, this is dumb. Obviously, I'd rather. <laughs> obviously, I would rather eat my meat pie, and that Please is just something. As long <laughs> as long as the show goes on, we're going to keep talking about that. So, really, hope people weren't having their kids listen to this one. Okay, <laughs> last one. <laughs> okay, Mandy, would you rather have to house Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in your home year-round, where he eats, sleeps, and poops, just inside inside your house? You cannot bring him outside. <laughs> That's how my things go. Or be tasked with keeping your house cold enough to keep Frosty the Snowman alive indoors in Florida. And just every day you're just packing new ice and stuff on him to try and keep him colder, cold enough. And if you don't, his ghost will haunt you for the rest of the year. And he is ticked off that you let him die. Oh, my Which gosh. Would you how do you come up with this stuff? <laughs> I don't know. But I don't do drugs. So it's always very confusing <laughs> to me where I come up with. Maybe I should have. Um, well, I guess I would rather have a new pet living in my house. My daughter thought you would say that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I have to, I would rather pick up poop every day than be freezing and like have a ghost of a like snowman haunting me. <laughs> I just me. love that idea. <laughs> like, please put ice on him, please. Oh my gosh, his carrot's melting down his face. <laughs> and then just an like, angry ghost in your house. Well, what is your choice? <laughs> Oh, um, I'm going to do that because I don't I you know how I feel about pooping animals. I don't want that around. I don't it wouldn't smell either because it's a frosty the snowman. Big deal. You haunt me. My whole life is just a tragedy and a mess. <laughs> I won't even notice. Mandy, can I tell you the worst thing that happened to me this week? I yes. don't know if I'm going to edit it. Okay. So the worst thing that happened to me this week is my mom said, hey, how's your week going? And I said, oh, pretty good. And my daughter said, Mom, you're forgetting about <laughs> what happened last week or a couple days ago. What happened a few days before that is we were in line at Sunny's Real Pit Barbecue and my son had to pee and it was nine o'clock at night or like eight o'clock at night. And where it is, you can't drive out like you can't get out of the parking lot. You know, if you're in a drive through and there's no way you can get out. Yes, like, uh -huh. So I'm there and my son's screaming because he has to pee. And you know how he is. He's very, very gets very worked up. So all I have is a cup and I'm like, well, I guess, I guess you're going to pee in a cup. And all I have was <laughs> is a small McDonald's cup, not even a large one. So I have to hold it while he pees because, you know, I can't trust him to hold it. So I have one arm in the back while he pees in a cup, turning the steering wheel in a drive through <laughs> screaming while my daughter is videotaping it. Um, just the whole reaction. And like hoping it doesn't spill, filled it up to the brim, just the brim, just as much pee as you could possibly get into a cup. <laughs> but my favorite part was I forgot that happened. My life is such a train wreck that that didn't even <laughs> register. <laughs> that was 
I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that terrible thing did happen like two days ago. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. No, we've totally we've totally had to pee in cups before. It just is a thing that happens when you have kids. So anyway, it uh, is. <laughs> I need a girl thing like for my daughter. But my son, he just likes to, could not be more proud to be peeing in this cup while I'm holding it, you know, going around a corner. But yeah, I just I enjoyed my train wreck life. So yeah. So oh, if yeah. You, your kids have peed in a cup. You're not alone. We've yeah, <laughs> you are totally not alone. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness gracious! So, Mandy, are you excited about your break? Couple weeks off. You doing anything fun? I am super excited. I will be working on writing the next few episodes of the show. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. I am going to try and read during the break. I'm so excited. A book. Like, I'm already halfway done with it, so I don't want to hear it. It's the book of Rachel Dratch from SNL, uh, Girl Walks Into a Bar. I've wanted to read it for a long time, so I'm reading that now, and I love it. The lady from Debbie Downer, that's who it is. Yeah, so I'm going to read that and then paint my room. Nothing exciting. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, we like to live it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. All right. I think we've done enough damage here for the entire year this is it this is it guys for the entire year we will see you in 2020 so excited already for 2020 i'm ready to get all these holidays over with and get there kind of at the beginning of the episode i said i was excited about christmas and now i'm like let's just get it over with i hate everything and i wish it was done (laughs) you're the person in the like in the closet screaming about how much you hate christmas yeah Have a great couple weeks. We'll see you back in January. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.